Welcome to Ready to Listen, a podcast about digital learning, creativity, problem solving, and innovation. I'm your host, Troy Foster. On this show, we talk to people from a range of disciplines about how they approach common creative challenges. So why listen? Because that's how we create. Many people view creativity as perching on a rock and waiting for a bolt of inspiration. But in my experience, it's a process of synthesis. It's about listening to a range of people and casting your net wide, then pulling together the best bits to come up with the solution. It's about pinging ideas back and forth and refining them, taking your outlandish harebrained idea and chipping away at it until it's something that works. Our guest today is a guy who's chipped away at his fair share of my outlandish harebrained ideas, Jonathan Kleinsmith. As well as being an award-winning instructional designer of digital learning, Jono's a bit of a renaissance man. He's also a singer, songwriter, guitarist, and drummer. In our discussion, we talk about Jono's musical background, how this influences his work as an instructional designer, some cool stuff he's working on, and some of the challenges for an instructional designer working on digital media. So, sit back, relax, and let's get ready to listen. Hi, Jono. Welcome to the Ready to Listen podcast. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Troy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yeah, it's good to be here. Awesome. So you're quite active on the music scene, aren't you? Yes. Uh, can you describe a little bit what you're up to these days? Yeah, sure. I play a number of instruments. I studied drums. So I played drums in a punk band called No Action. We're pretty loud and fast, as is punk's want. And I play guitar and sing in a band called Postwar. Those are the two bands that are active. Um, I usually tend to help out with friends' other music projects as needed, but, you know, that's sort of an on-again, off-again basis. But, yeah, we play shows and record and write songs and usually all original stuff. So it's down to two main bands at the moment. Yeah, uh, down from about 30. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to do a lot more, but, you know, time and priorities and all that sort of thing, it falls by the wayside a bit. But now I can really throw my attention into those two and make them probably as good as they can be. Awesome. Yeah. So how did you get into music? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I started learning piano when I was a kid. Um, my parents made me do it. I thought it was pretty lame. How old were you when you started? I was... Oh, I was in year three. How old are you when you're in year three? So nine? I was, I was seven, so I reckon I was in year two. So. Oh, yeah, so young. I, th- <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was lame, and I thought that people that played the drums were the coolest. So I really wanted to play the drums. I started learning them in high school, and I was okay at it, I think. I don't know if I was good at it, but I had a real passion for it, and I never stopped loving it. And so straight after high school, I started studying it. And during the course of that study, I became somewhat good at it. And so, yeah, uh, that's sort of where it started. Uh, straight after high school, I studied music performance at the con, um, the conservatorium, I should say. And as part of that, you learn guitar and piano a bit as well. You learn a couple of other instruments. And okay. Yeah. And I can't really sing. I've never had singing lessons, but, you know, it doesn't stop you trying. And then you just try and make something up that's entertaining and off the cuff. Yeah, I, do, I mean, I do some um, some stuff like the Rocksmith and that myself. Yeah. And I always find that it's quite transitory. Mm. You'll know 
one or two songs backwards. Yeah, and then um, you move on to the next section. And, yeah. yeah, so so like for a set, like how many songs do you do in a set? Varies. Usually you get pl- asked to play between, for original stuff, it's between half an hour to an hour. Hour is a lot of original stuff, especially if people don't really know your work. So how did you end up in instructional design? Uh, my life has a weird trajectory to it. So I was studying music, and after that I found myself unemployed. And a friend put me into work uh, as a photocopier repairman for Fuji Xerox. So I was fixing photocopiers. I got um, contracted out to uh, BHP and GHD. And those were the two buildings that I worked in. They had massive fleets of photocopiers all through them. And part of my job was to not only fix the machines, but train people on those sites on how to fix the machines. So that, you know, hopefully I would slowly make myself redundant. Um, <laughs> it seemed to be the idea behind that. I should jump back a bit as well. This is what I mean by my life has a weird trajectory. So back in high school, the two subjects that I did very excellently in were music and English, because they were the subjects I felt passionately about. I love to read and I love to write. Um, I just love words in general. I think that's something that's common about uh, across both music and instructional design. Um, So back in high school, I was excellent at those things and I always wanted to study English. So after studying music, this story jumps around too much. After studying (laughs) music, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Professional Communication. I think you're familiar with that degree. I I am. I think all the best people do that degree. Yes, I think a fantastic degree. You know, great crop of people. (laughs) Bumper crop. (laughs) So I studied that. And then after that, found myself uh, unemployed. But I ended up working for Fuji Xerox fixing photocopiers. And from there, I ended up working for support at E3 Learning. Okay. Which is where I still am employed. Um, And we... Uh, slowly, slowly, I moved from support into instructional design. I remember that transition. It was a, it was, it, honestly, it was a pretty smooth transition. I think I started off by doing proofreading um, and just checking to make sure instructions made sense to ensure the writing was clear. Because if I could understand it, then hopefully Joe on the street could understand it. Sure. Um, and from there, it led into writing more instructions and slowly accumulated. And yeah, now I do it full time. Running uh, full courses. Yeah, yeah, that's good stuff. So you, you alluded to a little bit with the um, English and music passions. Is there what are the similarities between writing for digital instructions and then writing for songs? Writing for songs, I find pretty. Uh, it can be really self-indulgent, and there's no restrictions on that. Um, this is a difference, actually. It's not a similarity. Whereas writing for instructional design, I think you you have an audience, a strict audience, and it's trying to solve a problem. Um, Music doesn't, it's not burdened by that. It doesn't have to solve a problem. That said, I find with instructional design and music, you get the best results when you have some limitations. Um, Like with instructional design, you need to know your, say you've got a target audience um, who are English second language, so the writing needs to be really clear and straightforward. That's actually a boon because it means you can focus your writing towards them. So you you don't have to write for everybody all of a sudden. It doesn't have to be aimed at academics. It doesn't have to be aimed at university teachers. Um, With music, if you have a limitation of say, you've got a 30 minute set and you want to write, you know, play as many songs as possible in that, then it's great. You write a bunch of songs that are all like, you know, a minute or two minutes long and do as many of them as possible. It's really kind of liberating. Sure. 
But with, I mean, with things like song structure, I mean, you're working within a band with a certain number of instruments and things yeah. like that. Does that sort of um, create boundaries that you yeah. bounce off um, to help yeah. with your creativity? Well, with instructional design, I think you've got certain uh, things that you can use to make the design as good as it can be. Um, like you've got voiceover, you've got images, and the way you use images in a course is really important to how it works on screen. With a band, you've got similar tools so it's how do you work that in um like at some shows people might find guitar solos really pretentious and you might not want to hear them i personally would kill to hear like <laughs> more guitar solos at shows so you know if i can work them in them fantastic yeah i can't say i, I subscribe to less guitar solos no <laughs> yeah yeah i think it's but if, i mean for example if you've got like oh, i'm gonna write a string section you kind of need to have someone that can play a few of those instruments available yeah. or otherwise yeah you need the tools in your toolkit right and similar with the um with instructional design there's no point in writing a, a pixar animation yeah exactly um, especially if you've got say a client that's on a strict budget you know sure. you've got to work within those parameters awesome yeah so instructional design has a few definitions how would you describe it as it relates to your role and the work that you do? Okay, sure. Um, primarily, we use instructional design for training people in behavior. Um, usually, what we do at E3 Learning, uh, instructional design involves compliance and risk management training. Um, that's a relatively narrow way of looking at it, but it's pretty accurate. Um, so often, we want people to do things that are within the law for their own safety. Right. Um, so it's hopefully training those behaviours. Uh, and instructional design is the means by communicating those behaviours. Yes. Does that make any sense at all? Sure. So from, from your point of view, you're writing about... Because, um, I mean, some of the definitions of instructional design encompass the building the courses mm -hmm. and uh, you know, with rapid e-learning tools. Yeah. Um, people will be... That they might write the theme tune, sing the theme tune, build the whole thing. Sure. Whereas with your role, it's a little bit different. It is. Uh, at E3, our role's predominantly writing. Um, and so it's looking at the words. We liaise between the developer who builds the product and the client who provides us with source material. So we'll get the source material. We'll say, okay, we think this is the best way to present this training. And that could be anything. It could be from text on a screen. It could be from an animation if they've got the budget for it, which, sure. you know, we can throw heaps of money into animation and I'd love to do that um, <laughs> we can do animations we can do you know long sort of video segments we can do interactive activities we can do assessments um, but what's the best way of doing that and then we give it to the production team and they develop it they actually build the product um, other instructional designers might actually build that from end to end I think that's fine I think the basic rule though is kind of the same you're all communicating the behavior that you want to train yeah, I think I mean I think the challenge for someone in your role is that you're actually dealing with two different audiences. Yeah, so sure. the um, client has to understand what you're proposing that you're going to do for the design, but the people, the developers, actually have to understand what you expect them to do to build it. Yeah, we uh, the documents we write are very uh, not two-faced. That's the, not really the right word, but uh, they're aimed in two different directions. Um, it's, it's a compromise to, yeah. to make sure it's not so technical that the it? layperson is like, I don't know what I'm going to get and yeah. can't 
Yes. It's like that animal from Doctor Doolittle, the push me pull you, which is like the have you seen that? The two headed alpaca. And so there's one pushing in one direction and that'll be the client trying to get the most out of their dollar. And then you have the other pulling in the other direction, which is saying, No, we can't actually build that. Sure. So, yeah. It's, it's just a, trying to mediate between those two yeah, groups. Give yeah. and take. And then of course there's the third audience, which yes. is the learner themselves. Ideally, that's who you're doing all of this for. Like, right. all the pain and suffering is actually for the benefit of the end learner. Ideally. So, <laughs> ideally. Yeah, ideally. So, what are some of the toughest problems you've had to solve uh, in digital learning? I can't remember how I answered this question last time. <laughs> I, think I, I think I made a new question. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> uh, um, we could skip over that one if you like. Yeah, um, yeah, let's I'll come skip back on to, to the it. next I'll question. I'll keep it in the back of my head. So I've seen some of the privacy stuff you've been working on and it looks Thank amazing. You. Thank you very much. Can you talk about some of the new features that you've been working on in this course? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, something we've been focused on in that course uh, is the split between nice to know information and mandatory information right. with privacy in the workplace. It's actually a pretty simple concept. Everybody has privacy and if you don't respect people's privacy, it can hurt them. Right. Like that's pretty easy for everybody to understand and often you'll find in privacy training I don't know we've been guilty of this is that it gets really bogged down in like you have a legal responsibility to obey people like obey the law regarding privacy uh, that's like that's that's the law but it's not the spirit of the law the spirit of the law is don't hurt people <laughs> because like you know breaching people's privacy will hurt people so that's been a real reorientation of what the course material has been so it's um, teaching people the behaviours rather than the principles. Yes, so, absolutely. Um, for people who don't know, the privacy legislation is based around 13 privacy principles. The Australian privacy principles. The, the APPs. Oh. And, and it's very easy <laughs> to focus on those and communicating those to the learner. Yeah. But um, it's not as helpful. So that's no. one of the problems that you've been solving with the new material, isn't it? Yeah, so the APPs, the Australian Privacy Principles, talk about a bunch of behave 13 different behaviours uh, regarding using and collecting and sharing people's personal information. Honestly, you're not going to remember all 13 of these. I'd be very surprised if somebody came away and was able to recite all 13 points. And you don't need to. You just need right. to know really like probably don't share people's personal information we're on the <laughs> side of not sharing it it's, and so there's some um, nice personalization stuff in that materials too wasn't there yeah so something we tried to do was make it relevant for specific industries that might do the course so we've got different case studies depending on your role uh, like we've got a series of questions that apply to teachers, we've got a series of questions that apply to call centre workers, and they're all specifically designed for that industry. So a teacher might get asked questions that breach a person's privacy during a parent-teacher interview. So we've scripted something around that. Yeah, so from the learner's point of view, they can, they've got the mandatory component, which mm -hmm. is the must-knows. Uh, and then they can opt into specifically which scenario relates to me. Yeah. So it's, yeah, yeah, it's a bit more focused that way, we think. And by focusing on the behaviours and the principles behind the law, um, you're able to really summarise the material in a more effective way and really get down to the behavioural change. Sure. Yeah. Awesome. So, so there's some pretty tough problems there with the APPs and that sure. sort of thing. What, what other sorts of problems have you had to tackle? Yeah. Um, 
Often, one of the big... Okay, there's probably a couple of big recurring problems in instructional design. And I would say one of them is that the training can be really dull. <laughs> but often... In, in, in legislation? <laughs> yeah, hard, hard to believe, <laughs> I know. But, um, yeah, it, it just doesn't grab you. Uh, and often that is because it focuses too much on the legislation. It, right. It focuses on what's written down rather than on what you should be doing. Um, so what sort of strategy do you use to overcome that? Really drill down into the material, think about what it's trying to say, and try and summarise it in a sentence. I find that really helpful for me. So like the laser focus type yeah, of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Like, look at paragraphs of legislation and say, well, what is this in service of? What is the behaviour I need to do so that I never need to read this legislation again? <laughs> you know? Um, like what action should I take? And focus on the actions that they, that you want the learner to do and then say that to them. Say there's nothing wrong with a course saying, we just want you to do this. Do you find it helps focus on what's at stake for the learner? Yeah, absolutely. So you think about consequences that the learner might face in their actual work environment or wherever they are, if they're in a school, if they're in a nurse nursing home, yeah. So trying to put yourself in their shoes and think like, what, what from this is gonna bring me to action if I'm in their yeah. situation. So think about the on a personal level what motivates them a bit. Um, right. Something we try and do is really consider the target audience, consider who's going to be doing the training. Um, if you try and aim training at everybody it's probably going to be less effective than if you focus it towards somebody in particular. Okay. Um, yeah, I tend to think of design as a solution to a problem. And so try and figure out what your problem is. Your problem might be that people aren't taking privacy very seriously or that people are, you know, inadvertently sharing people's personal information. One of the examples we've got is that uh, somebody rings a company up and they ask to speak to Ben. And the company has like three or four Bens working for them. And so the person's like, oh, do you mean Ben Smith? Well, that's a breach of privacy. You've just told the person your co-worker's surname. Like, right. you, know, you shouldn't be doing that. Like, so yeah, it's it's something that we would all do because it's inadvertent. So it's it, we assume that people don't want to break the law. We want to get them when they might accidentally do that. Right. Yeah. Awesome. And now for the tricky one. Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> the one tricky one. <laughs> okay, here we go. How do you see digital learning in the next few years? That's a good question. I can't predict the technology. I think there's a lot of new tech that's coming through that's exciting. Uh, we've got virtual reality, and especially I find augmented reality stuff really interesting. That's stuff like the QR codes that you mm -hmm. see on things. You use your phone to scan it and it gives you more information. I find that sort of stuff great because it interacts with what you've got in the palm of your hand. But I think those are just tools. I think for principles, for online learning, I think if you focus on a narrative approach, like telling a story through your training, having an end goal that you're working towards and showing a clear journey leading towards that, really? I, I, I think storytelling is the basis of all communication. I think it's as old as the hills and it'll still be going, like in 100, 200 years, people will still want stories. So use that as your bedrock. I think there's, oh crap, what was my other one? I totally forgot about it. Oh. I think you should be flexible as well. I think versatility 
and a narrative approach will keep you in good stead. People will change. I don't think their desire for stories will change, but people will change. So you want to be able to adapt with them. Technology is going to keep changing. There'll be virtual reality and AR and whatever we, you know, we might reinvent the wheel. We might actually do it and find something that works just as well. Elon Musk might put us on Mars. What are we going to do about <laughs> training then, you know? The tools will change, but I think be able to adopt those changes and adapt to them. Okay, so narrative and flexibility. I think those two things are the linchpins. So, yeah, that's interesting. So the, the, the future is actually the past. I like that. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Mm. Like, time is a flat circle. Isn't that what <laughs> true detective said? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if the podcast can, can handle an interpretation of true detective. No, we might need another couple of hours. What was the other one? All this has happened before and all this will happen again. <laughs> okay. was that from Peter Pan, I think. Okay. Yeah, sorry, we're just sidetracked into <laughs> philosophy now. <laughs> Awesome. Did you have anything else that you wanted to share? No, not at all. That's awesome. about it for me. Thank you very much for your time, Jono. No worries. Thanks heaps for having me. Thanks for listening all the way through. If you'd like us to listen to you, hit us up on the email, Twitter, or leave a review on iTunes. To find out more about Jono and his instructional design work, check out the show notes. And keep on listening.